Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 4. Three Kinds of Failure Art Krieg was born in Cleveland, Ohio. His dad was a researcher and moved the family around. First Alaska then Massachusetts, then Syracuse, New York, until finally they settled in Hershey, Pennsylvania. When Art began his higher education, he moved around too. He went to Haverford College in Philadelphia for his undergraduate degree, and then attended medical school at Washington University in St. Louis, then did a residency in internal medicine at the University of Minnesota. That was where he realized he wanted to go into research. His reason, as he himself admits, was a common one. As a doctor, you help patients one at a time. But if you develop a drug, you might be able to help hundreds of thousands of people. And so Art, in 1986, went to train in rheumatology at the National Institutes of Health, a place he still calls a national treasure. In the early 1980s, a biochemist named Marv Carruthers and his team at the University of Colorado at Boulder had developed phosphoramidate chemistry that allowed the building of an automated DNA synthesizer. Suddenly, anyone with one of these machines could type into the keyboard the sequence of the DNA they wanted hit the start button, and then go and have a cup of coffee, Art told me, while the desired DNA was produced into vials. This opened the door to all kinds of experiments, and interest began to flow back toward Anisense. Art caught wind of the technology while at NIH, and he went to the first Anisense conference ever in 1989, where he learned about the new companies being formed. He was naive about the difficulties ahead, but the concept behind Anisense intrigued him. He went on to have a career focused on the mechanics of antisense. Art co-founded the first academic journal for the technology, called Nucleic Acid Therapeutics, and co-founded the Oligonucleotide Therapeutic Society. Over the past decades, he has co-founded or worked at several oligonucleotide companies, including Checkmate Pharmaceuticals, which is focused on immunotherapy and where he's currently chief scientific officer. He has more than 50 patents covering oligonucleotides to his name and has spent decades investigating antisense. This is him talking about the original Paul Zemechnik paper. And Paul Zemechnik deserved a lot of credit for thinking of this in 1978 when it took six months to make enough synthetic DNA to do a single experiment. And yet we now know that the experiment he performed could not possibly have worked through an antisense mechanism of action because he was using unmodified DNA. And whatever they saw had to be an artifact. In other words, the entire antisense industry of the late 1980s this collection of companies that included Stan Crook and ISIS had been formed on a misleading finding. From Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett, and this is Hope, Lies, and Dreams. In March of 1992, ISIS began clinical trials with its compound against human papillomavirus, or HPV, called ISIS-2105. 
The trial called for the drug to be injected into the skin after genital warts had been surgically removed, and the study was meant to measure a reduction, delay, or elimination of wart recurrence. In December that year, they moved the compound to phase two. In culture dishes, the drug had been shown to inhibit the production of a protein required for strains of HPV to replicate, and the company eventually tested it in more than 300 people at considerable cost. To this day, Stan still thinks the genital warts trial should have worked, but it didn't. The drug wasn't showing an antisense mechanism, and it wasn't spurring a pro-inflammatory immune response to knock down the virus either. And it certainly wasn't doing those two things in tandem, as Stan had once hoped it would. By 1995, ISIS had stopped development. The herpes drug program was stopped before ever being tested in people. It just wasn't the right drug, Stan said. But partner Isai wanted ISIS to look at cytomegalovirus, CMV as it is called, often presents no symptoms, but when the immune system is compromised, the virus sometimes causes CMV retinitis, an inflammation of the retina that can lead to blindness. Isis called its compound Isis-2922, or fomavirsin, and it was a synthetic 21-nucleotide phosphorothioate oligodeoxynucleotide. That meant it had a sulfur atom in place of a non-binding oxygen in its phosphate backbone. It was aimed at CMV messenger RNAs that code for a protein needed for replication. With Isai paying half the costs, ISIS moved it into phase three in 1995, the final trials needed for approval. ISIS had always prided itself on being open about the work it was doing. It scheduled a day of events that year to share their progress with the greater world. First an internal board meeting, then a shareholders meeting with the press invited, and finally a session focused only on their science, with presentations and posters set up under tents outside the company's headquarters. Yet early in the day, it went off the rails. Here's Stan. During the board meeting, which preceded the annual meeting, Dan Kishner, who was here then, um, got a call, left the meeting, came back ashen, and said, oh, well, this and that. And, and I mean, uh, said, hey, we have a problem? Like, we, oh, we yeah. may have blindness. We, yeah, oh, yeah. And, and so on the spot, we had to decide whether we were going to keep the trial going or suspend it or stop it altogether. Dan Kistner had worked with Stan at SmithKline, had admired his energy and his intellect, and he joined ISIS right after the 1991 IPO. He was chief operating officer when he got the call from a clinical director in the form of Vierson trial. One of the patients had ophthalmitis in one eye with acute vision loss. There had been nothing traumatic about the injection, the physician said, but it was terrible for the patient, and Dan knew could very well sink both the trial and the drug. In Kistner's mind, there was only one thing to do, which was stop enrollment in the trial. That meant halting patient accrual, and those already in the trial would get no more drug either. He also decided that all patients should go see an eye doctor as a precautionary step. Those decisions were made immediately. But that still left dealing with a long day ahead of them and the many visitors. Dan and Lynn Parshall and Stan and the rest of the management team huddled in Stan's office to think through their responsibilities. First, they agreed to report the adverse event to the FDA, as required, and to not reopen the study until they conducted a full evaluation. But Dan also argued, with no debate, he said, to inform everyone scheduled to be at their company that day. Dan had about half an hour to overhaul his slides for their annual meeting, and when he'd made the changes, he stood before the assembled shareholders, analysts, and biotech trade press, and said they were halting the trial of their lead product. When that was done, the company relayed the same message to those attending the scientific presentations that afternoon. For hours, to everyone, they passed out the bad news about Fomavirsin. It was not my best day, Dan Kistner told me. Ethically, this was the only path forward. 
but it turned out to be the right thing for the share price, too. ISIS had expected the stock to get hammered. Their only clinical product had just reported a serious adverse event. But the next day, shares inched upward. Analysts patted us on the back, Dan told me. They appreciated the transparency and were willing to wait on the results of the investigation. The ophthalmitis turned out to be a complication of the injection itself and had nothing to do with the drug. No other problems had been discovered and nothing grew in the culture they performed from the affected patient. The trial continued, but it was a lesson for ISIS. Always be honest, always tell the truth. But the problem becomes when your version of the truth doesn't match up with what everyone else thinks because then your truth begins to look like a lie that you won't stop spreading. By the end of 1997, Fomavirsin had completed four phase three trials, one of which was in combination with other drugs, all measured time to disease progression. The package ISIS sent to the FDA had data on more than 300 subjects, and the agency approved it to treat CMV retinitis in AIDS patients in 1998, just five months after the application was submitted. The drug was branded Vitravine, and approval in Europe and Brazil followed. Stan, as quoted in the New York Times, called the approval one more piece in the mosaic of evidence that suggests antisense can work. Though ISIS had high hopes, publicly saying Vitravine might reach $100 million in annual U.S. sales, the drug would earn ISIS only $674,000 in royalty revenue over the course of its short life. ISIS had argued to the FDA that an increasing number of AIDS patients were failing the heart's antiretroviral therapy regimen used at the time, and that would cause the incidence of CMV retinitis to rise. But in truth, that didn't happen. ISIS itself had trouble completing enrollment in its trials. In 1997, it had added nearly zero new patients, it said, and that trend of decreasing disease incidence continued after approval. The drug was withdrawn by the FDA in 2001, with partner Novartis withdrawing it from Europe in 2002 due to low demand. Vitravine was the result of nine years of research into antisense. It was applauded as the first antisense drug in the world, but when it never sold, the narrative changed. It was a big deal to us and to others that we got the first antisense drug approved, but it then became really just another failure that ISIS had. You know, it's how come you fail all the time? It had been more than 10 years since Stan Crook first considered forming an antisense company. Over that period, he had included his wife, close friends, and colleagues, and his mentor, Harris Bush, into his dream. Much of that core remained. Frank Bennett was still there, well past his self-appointed three-year deadline for knowing if antisense would work. So was co-founder Dave Ecker. Chris Gabrielli was still on the board. Brett Monia remained. There had really been only one notable departure from that initial core. Chris Mirabelli, in 1993. He and his wife had had a baby, and they moved back to the East Coast to be closer to family. He had been working with Stan for a decade at that point. And with Stan around, it's hard to see yourself ever failing, he said. It felt like it was time to go off on his own. Here he is talking about leaving ISIS. Um, it, it was, it was... Difficult. It was difficult. I, I think for both of us, it was difficult um, because of this long history yeah, that you had. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and, and it, like you said, it, it was a, it was, you know, one where, yeah, I don't know whether, I don't know whether loyalty or whatever was. As I said, I think it was just a hard thing for me to communicate to him. And you know, Stan is somebody who you know he expects you to, you know, he expects sort of longevity if you've been working together and. It had only been five years, and I was one of the founders. They'd started a company to transform the concept of antisense into a viable drug development platform, 
and that work was far from complete. To Stan, the parting after only five years felt a little like quitting. But on a personal level, Chris Mirabelli moving to Boston was also like somebody leaving the family, and that would always be hard for Stan to stomach. Otherwise, however, the company was undergoing consistent growth. By mid-1998, ISIS was up to about 340 employees. It had been awarded more than 90 U.S. patents and another 70 in foreign countries. It continued to attract interest from pharmaceutical partners, including in 1995 a significant deal with Boehringer Ingelheim, in which Boehringer bought $28.5 million of ISIS stock, gave ISIS a $40 million line of credit, and soon paid another $10 million for a milestone achieved in their partnered program around ISIS-2302. That compound was being widely tested by the companies, including a phase 3 in Crohn's disease, then also psoriasis, ulcerative colitis, renal transplant rejection, and asthma. Lower in the pipeline, ISIS had programs in cancer. So what did it matter, in the long run, if vitravine didn't sell? There was plenty else coming. To fund all this research, ISIS had brought in money in just about every way imaginable. Here's Stan. It turns out that I hired a guy named uh, Yasunori Kananiko, huh? who was a Japanese national who had gone to the right preschool, gone to the right University of Tokyo and Keio Medical School, and was very highly connected in Japan. And it was really he who helped me do the secondary in Japan. And and the market was still closed yeah. in the U.S. And so Yasunori and I were talking, and he said, I think we could we could take advantage of the relationships I have in Japan and and raise money there. You know, there really wasn't much of a choice. And so off we went to Japan. Kaniko was chief financial officer at ISIS then. He took Stan around to the big investors, Mitsubishi, Zaibatsu, and Stan gave them his perhaps overly hopeful but still frank pitch. Antisense had big potential, but it would require a lot of money and time to get there. ISIS eventually raised $19 million from Japanese investors in 1991, then $13.7 million later that year in the U.S. It raised $37 million across two public offerings in 1993 and more from the public in 1994 and 95. Basically, ISIS raised money when and wherever it could and borrowed money to fill in the gaps. But mostly it was fueled through its research partnerships with pharmaceutical firms. In 1998 alone, it earned almost $39 million from collaborations and signed deals with Abbott Laboratories and Zeneca Pharmaceuticals to go along with their partnerships with Boehringer Ingelheim and Novartis. But there was trouble there too. In March of that year, ISIS got a call from Novartis. For months, ISIS had been trying to reproduce the data they were getting from their partner related to their cancer program. ISIS couldn't do it, and that raised a lot of questions. Here's Brett Monia, who was in charge of oncology drug discovery at the time. We were also getting, uh, at that time now, um, questions from collaborators and even competitors who were trying to, you know, do what, what reproduce what we were, we were sharing with everybody. Because they'd seen your publications. They saw our presentations at medical, at conferences, com- presentations usually precede publications and then some publications as well. So, um, you know, I, I you can you can see how this would build. Our our efforts intensified. We were putting more and more pressure on Novartis, not questioning whether or not um, there was something going wrong, really questioning our own capabilities. What were, what were we doing wrong? And we were we were really intensifying the effort. <clears throat> it was around this time that I received a call from the global head of oncology um, at Novartis, who informed me that a single individual at Novartis, who was responsible for 
analyzing all the data. He was really responsible for all the animal data in cancer at Novartis. That that single individual um, admitted to falsifying all the data, but also their internal drugs. It was all it was all phony. And um, this obviously was a shock to us. But more than that, it, it was it was very concerning because we had clinical trials in progress that um, were based on, in large part on that data. In retrospect, maybe they should have suspected. The data ISIS was getting from Novartis in these animal studies were stunningly positive, Brett Monia told me. ISIS began to sift through the wreckage, trying to establish exactly what data had been falsified and by how much. The companies were investigating three cancer compounds together, including ISIS-3521, meant to inhibit the expression of protein kinase C, alpha, and ISIS-5132, designed to inhibit CRAF kinase. When they knew where the lies had been laid, they set out to fix the public record. ISIS published a correction in Nature Medicine for its paper, Anti-Tumor Activity of a Phosphorothioid Antisense Oligodeoxynucleotide Targeted Against CRAF Kinase. ISIS also informed the biotech trade press of the fraud and disclosed the entire thing to the American Association for Cancer Research and the American Society for Clinical Oncology. The false data centered around dosing. The researcher had faked results showing tumor suppression from tantalizingly small levels of drug. But when ISIS redid many of the studies, they still detected an anti-tumor effect, albeit at a higher dose, and decided to continue the program. Though this had been no fault of their own, issuing journal corrections and alerting the American Society for Clinical Oncology about inaccuracies that directly related to clinical work was not a good look for ISIS or antisense. And if that wasn't enough, in 1998, Gilead left the antisense field completely. In many ways, the company had functioned as a colleague to ISIS a compatriot in antisense located up the California coast. But in other ways, Gilead seemed like an older brother with all the sibling rivalry that entails. Formed first, and with a medical doctor slash venture capitalist at the helm, the company had an easier time with investors, bringing in more than $40 million from venture capitalists and then raking in about $86 million in its sought-after initial public offering in January 1992. And it had gotten to the CMV retinitis market first with its antiviral nucleotide analog drug named Vistide which, in its first three years on the market, brought Gilead more than $25 million before its sales also shrank away with the declining incidence of CMV retinitis. In other words, Gilead cast a long shadow with the public, and ISIS at times seemed caught in it. Steve Teague was one of the first analysts to cover the antisense field and wrote in 1992 what was considered the first analyst's note on public antisense companies. Here he is talking about the field at that time. As I stated in the report, money-raising was a big deal at the particular time that I wrote that report. Um, Gilead was much more successful, or at least had more money at the bank at the time. Mm -hmm. I think they had double what the other, you know, at least double what the other players had. And Mike Reardon, who at the time was the founder and CEO of Gilead, had a real gift for um, re, um, just changing his story you know, a couple times a year, same underlying story, but he was able to market it in a different manner and to different sets of people that I think he, you know, proved out to be very adept at, at getting money in the door. So, yeah, it was it was a real serious competition at that particular time. Um, you know, I think uh, Mike Reardon at Gilead was winning that war. When Stan Crook started ISIS, he thought he knew how to speak to investors. 
He'd been in front of them many times through his role at SmithKline. But he learned that doing it as CEO of a startup was riskier, somehow more naked. He had to sell them on the great potential in this unproven technology, but still be honest about all the things they had to overcome. If he focused too much on the potential, it might seem like hype. If he was too blunt about the technological hurdles, it would scare everyone away. In fact, he was accused in his career of overhyping antisense. It was a walk on a tightrope for him, and Stan struggled to find the balance. I don't feel like I've ever knowingly hyped anything, but certainly that was said about me. So you said you'd understand why they might say that. What's your understanding of why they might say that? Well, because I was selling, uh, and I was still learning how to do investor relations, and I don't think I ever got very good at it. Um, you know, I never, I, I couldn't quite figure out what language to use. Uh, you know, the just the way investors wanted people to talk at, at, at that time. Mike Reardon at Gilead, on the other hand, was great at it. He was charismatic, had experience as a venture capitalist and an MBA. Selling Gilead's story to bankers must have felt like second nature to him. Stan, competitive as ever, had to watch money flow toward Gilead when he was sure he had the better antisense company. I, I would just say it, it was very frustrating to me. In truth, though, Gilead's antisense efforts were not progressing well. It had signed a big deal with Glaxo Welcome in 1990 to develop genetic code blockers, Gilead's name for their antisense technology. The deal had been extended over the years, but Glaxo pulled out in 1998 without the companies ever producing a drug. Gilead began looking for a new partner, but when nothing materialized, it simply left antisense behind. It was a moment of opportunity for ISIS. Stan had long wanted to hold the dominant IP position in antisense. If we didn't invent it, the plan was to buy it, he told me. By the end of the year, ISIS had paid $6 million for all patents and patent applications Gilead held around antisense chemistry and drug delivery. Gilead quit antisense because it had better prospects to pursue. In the early 90s, Gilead had formed a partnership with a researcher named Antonin Holy, who was at the Institute for Organic Chemistry and Biochemistry in Prague, Czech Republic, and also with his collaborator, Eric de Klerk, at the Riga Institute for Medical Research at Catholic University in Leuven, Belgium. The collaboration broadly covered biologically active nucleotide analogs, which are synthetic, chemically modified to be incorporated into DNA or RNA and inhibit both cellular division and viral replication. The collaboration included three specific compounds, cedofavir, tenofavir, and adafavir. These would become Vistide, the CMV retinitis drug that beat vitravine to market, and Viriad, which was soon a blockbuster and a major asset in the fight against AIDS. Adafavir became Hepsera for chronic hepatitis B. Gilead had fought hard for the pool of money available for antisense and won a lot of it, but the company simply didn't need antisense any longer. Here's Steve Teague. Um, look, every time I covered a group, you know, neuroscience companies, antisense companies, um, they all, um, they all, as I recall, they all talked a lot of trash about one another. I'm not saying that it was necessarily open, but also, you know, I think there was a, a likelihood that investors would interpret the movement away from anti-sense as negative when in fact what was probably said was, well, we found a better opportunity in this space, and so we're allocating our capital in that direction. It was probably a very rational decision. Yeah, I don't know yeah. that it necessarily meant anti-sense was bad. I just think that the other 
um, you know, chemistries or projects were better. And I think in the case of Gilead, they found some AIDS drugs in, I think, the Czech Republic at Rigastikting, one of the institutes over there. It proved out to be really compelling. And as we all know, it you know, became an AIDS company. It had been a practical, straight business decision. But the problem for Stan, ISIS, and anyone left in the field was that Gilead justified its departure by telling anyone who asked that antisense didn't work. Or anyway, that's how ISIS remembers it. Here's Dave Ecker. Gilead went on to do something else, and uh, they, they actually scorched the earth, uh, leaving antisense. You know, I mean, they, they were a, sort of a high-visibility Wall Street you know, company, and um, they actually said, we're getting out of antisense because it doesn't work, right? And uh, um, we've got Gilead scorching the earth and people saying antisense doesn't work. And, and um, the world was not believing that antisense could be a therapeutic. This is not the way Gilead recalls this period of its history, however. Michael Reardon did not want to be interviewed or recorded, but he did agree to provide his thoughts. Reardon left Gilead in 1997, so the sale of the antisense intellectual property came after my tenure, he told me. He agreed that attempts to use antisense oligos as therapeutics were generating poor results at the time. And it would be understandable, he said, if this caused a dampening effect on the field. But he doubts anyone at Gilead would have bothered to attempt to criticize antisense, he said, as the company left the room. The CEO at the time of the IP sale, John Martin, who helmed Gilead through two decades of tremendous success, passed away in March of this year. But current Gilead management told me they do not recall any wholesale comment that the technology would never work. Rather, they said, Gilead knew it would be difficult to find success with Antisense, and as a smaller company at the time, it prioritized work in other areas. Regardless, prioritizing another area was not a decision Stan Crook would have made. He had committed to Antisense for life. Walking away for a better opportunity was a kind of cheat, taking the easy way out, he thought. Gilead's departure, and then its subsequent success in the HIV field, was another source of tension between the companies, or at least in Stan's mind. He has told me, dismissively, and more than once, that he thought he could in-license a nucleotide analog and get it approved in his sleep. He was out to do something bigger, no matter all the massive success, financially and for patients, that Gilead has achieved through its in-licensing sense. At that time, ISIS had already begun to accrue a valuable patent estate, enough to out-license in 1998 patents covering immune stimulation by phosphothioate oligonucleotides to a smaller company called CPG Immunopharmaceuticals. ISIS's IP position was further strengthened in December 1999 when it was awarded U.S. Patent 6001653, covering human RNase H1, a cellular enzyme that degrades RNA when antisense drugs bind to it. This was a key component to most antisense compounds, and also when the technology was used as a screening tool. It helped push the company toward the patent domination Stan Long wanted. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even before Gilead's departure, there had been a murmuring of disbelief about anti-sense in academic circles. Art Krieg, in 1995, had published a paper in Nature titled CPG Motifs in Bacterial DNA Trigger Direct B-Cell Activation. What the paper said, roughly, was that a cytosine-guanine dinucleotide sequence in the backbone of an antisense drug could generate an immune response in the patient, and that immune response would sometimes appear to be an antisense effect. This CPG motif was in nearly all the antisense drugs being developed at the time, including vitravine. Krieg's paper directly called the current generation of antisense drugs into question. The first approved antisense drug for the eye, and I'm putting air quotes around antisense, that's fomavircin, this drug that was developed for CMV retinitis. That oligonucleotide does not work through an antisense mechanism of action, or did not work. It's no longer marketed. And so even though at the time it was considered to be a proof of concept that antisense therapy works, When you go through the data on the drug, it's actually clear that it could not have been working through an antisense mechanism of action. That's clear now or that was clear then? Well, so I went to ISIS in, I think it was 1995, and I gave a seminar there where I talked about the immune stimulatory effects of oligonucleotides. And I used their own published data with this oligofomavircin to show them that their drug could not have been working through an antisense mechanism because they had made, they had published that if you change bases on the ends of the oligo where there's a sequence GCG Uh on each end of the oligo, and they had published that if you change those bases, you lose all of the activity of the drug. But if you change the sequence of the bases in the middle of the oligo that ought to be the most important for binding to your target, it didn't affect the activity of the drug. And the discovery that I had made at that time was that CGs, CPGs, are immune stimulatory. And so what I told them was that your drug is not working through an antisense mechanism. It's working through some kind of an immune mechanism that's due to these CGs on the ends. And one of the scientists came up to me afterwards and said, you caused a minor riot in the back room there uh, of ISIS. Because I think a lot of people realized that, yeah, that's, that's got to be true. ISIS wasn't blind about it. Dan Kistner remembers that presentation. ISIS was sure its drug inhibited the expression of proteins required for virus replication. But Dan also said that Art's paper and discovery on the CPG dinucleotide was real science. It could not be dismissed or ignored. Vitravine, also called formavircin, worked. The clinical trial proved that. But exactly how vitravine worked, Dan, to this day, can't say. Others were questioning antisense. Cy Stein, a former researcher at the National Cancer Institute, and current professor and researcher at City of Hope, had written a paper even earlier, in 1993, in Science, titled, Antisense Oligonucleotides as Therapeutic Agents. Is the bullet really magical? In the paper, he laid out the six things that would be required for antisense to work in patients, including resolving issues around manufacturing and uptake by the target cells. Only if those six rather sizable hurdles could be cleared, he wrote, could antisense live up to its potential. Art Levin, senior vice president of drug development at ISIS during this period, 
told me that while he was on an early phone call with FDA reviewers to discuss vitravine, a reviewer wondered aloud why they were having the call, given that antisense doesn't work. It was yet another eye-roll moment, Levin said, the kind of thing the company heard daily from those outside its walls. Through all this, Isis pushed ahead. With vitravine doomed on the market, the next hope was the compound Isis-2303, or alkaforsin, as it was called, partnered with Boehringer Ingelheim. It was designed to inhibit the expression of the ICAM-1 gene, and Isis had it in phase two trials for a handful of indications, the most advanced being Crohn's disease. An interim analysis of 150 patients in late 1998 showed the drug caused a steroid-free complete remission in 29% of patients. The placebo arm had a remission rate of just 14%. Isis expected the full trial to bear similar results, but when it ended in late 1999, only 12% of drug-treated patients in the second half of the study had a steroid-free remission. The placebo group was much higher. The trial, Stan told me, was a zero. The difference between the interim and the final analysis was hard to quantify. It's possible that clinicians were putting their most needy patients in their tumor necrosis factor antibody trials, which were new then for Crohn's patients. So maybe enrollees in the second half of the trial had something more nebulous, like irritable bowel syndrome, and the drug didn't work. But either way, alkaforsin was another clear failure. Seeing those final results was a desperately bad moment, Stan said. I went to look at the unblinding just assuming it was going to be positive because we already had statistical significance at the halfway mark. Couldn't believe, couldn't believe and couldn't explain and couldn't understand how this drug could have failed. We were out of money. I had to lay off about half the people and there was no hope. NASDAQ, expecting a bloodbath, halted trading of ISIS's stock the day the company went public with its news until it could hold a conference call. But when that was over and trading resumed, the stock fell through the floor, ending the day down 64% at $5.59. Even Stan had to wonder if the dream was over. So the first step was to convince ourselves that we had the right to ask for money and the right to stay the course. And once we got to that, then it was just a question of how. But the the big, big issue for me was, is it, do, do I have any justification in continuing to pursue this technology when everyone was saying everyone else, everybody smart gave up? There, there was never a moment when I saw the, the, the concept of, that, that the technology had gotten to a place where we couldn't succeed. No. The science taught me what I needed to know there. There was certainly a moment when I thought, and this was the worst feeling of all, was I felt that we were on the cusp of doing this and that it was unlikely that we'd be able to get the money. And that bothered me a lot because it meant that the the truth of this opportunity was going to be lost. It'd probably be lost for a long time. The truth. It was getting difficult to understand just what that was. In science, answers tend to come slowly, almost emerging out of a fog. A hypothesis only leads to more questions. There were some people who already thought they knew the truth about antisense, which was that it didn't work. Others, including Stan and everyone at ISIS, thought they knew the truth too. They just needed to get the proof. The first thing ISIS had to do was reduce its size. Stan treated ISIS like a family, and now he was going to have to let people go, people that depended on him for their livelihood, who needed the job to support their real families at home. 
I had to lay off people who were friends that had invested, you know, their careers and their lives in trying to do this. That day, I had an all-employee meeting and laid it all out and said, I'm not sure we can make it, but I am very confident that we should, that, that we have solutions to these problems. And I said, if I can raise the money, here's the plan. I mean, you just need to tell people the truth and show them that you've got a path that, that, that it may, may be achievable. The reduction resonated throughout ISIS. Here's Lynn Parshall talking about what a massive layoff does to a company and morale. Um, which I've got to say, and probably other people have talked to you about it, is one of the most awful things to have to go through because you're, you know, you're sitting in a room with a box of Kleenex on your desk and, you know, people come in and, you know, they're your friends. I mean, they're not just your work colleagues, they're your friends. And you have to tell them that they're, they, you had to make difficult decisions and they don't have a job anymore. And, um, and it's very hurtful. And then after that, the people who are left feel good that they're still there, but feel terrible that their friends are gone and are all being asked to do five jobs, you know? And here's Dave Ecker talking about that day. We, we have a culture in the company that's, that, that people behave well to one another, people dream big, uh, people um, believe that uh, putting the patient first is what matters. And, you know, when, when you get a shared vision like that with a bunch of people and you have to say goodbye to half of them, it, it, it's, it's traumatic. I, it, was, it was terribly traumatic. I mean, it, uh, uh, it had a big impact on all of us, had a big impact on Stan. You know, when it was disclosed to all of us what happened in the trial, we knew what was going to happen after that. And uh, uh, we were really, Stan was very transparent with all the employees. And he said, you know, look, you know, we're, it's not going to be sustainable with this level. We're going to have to, we're going to have to size, downsize the company. Uh, there were tears in the hallways. We had, um, I remember we had paid for uh, a Christmas party, holiday party uh, in the, um, you know, in a nice hotel here. And uh, um, uh, and we got the news uh, in November, and we had our assemblies and, and we talked things through, and uh, you know Stan explained you know what was going to happen, and uh, uh, someone raised their hand and said, "Could we cancel the holiday party, you know, which was going to cost I don't know seventy thousand dollars or something, and, and save one job?" And uh, um, I remember the head of HR raised her hand and said, "We've already thought of that. We can't get our money back." So, yeah. so, so then we then we debated, well, what kind of a party are we going to have? You know, some people said, "Well, let's just we won't have music. We'll just it'll be kind of a, like a goodbye thing." And then other people said, "No, wait a minute here. This is life. This is how things work. Uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna go and we're gonna." Uh, we're going to have a good time. We're going to celebrate. We're going to have music. We're going to have dancing, and uh, and and a lot of us are going to be saying goodbye to one another at, at that party. And so we we had um, uh, uh, a pretty up tempo, you know, holiday party. 
that year uh, um, as, as kind of a send-off to a lot of the people that um, we couldn't keep. ISIS cut 140 people in the first four months of 2000, about 40% of the company, for an estimated savings of $2 million. They also cut back on spending and focused only on programs that might have significant commercial potential. Partner Boringer Ingelheim had paid for half of the cost to develop Alcaforsen, but ISIS had also dumped in millions of dollars over the years. Boeringer had given rights to Alcaforsen back to ISIS before the trial results. Never a good sign. But it meant that ISIS was alone with a compound now in those other indications. The company ended 1999 with cash on hand of about $53 million, saying it should be able to fund operations for at least three years following the restructuring. But given that it had spent $66 million on R&D alone in 1999, this hardly seemed possible unless ISIS set its research engine to idle, and that had never been the company's style. The numbers suddenly looked very grim. Since inception, ISIS had earned $180 million through contracted work with pharmaceutical companies and raised about $250 million by selling its stock. It had also borrowed $72 million to finance parts of the business. What did the company really have to show for it? An accumulated loss of $257 million and one questionable antisense drug approved, which was now officially bringing in $0 a year. Even by the more forgiving metrics of drug development, where the risk is high and success rate is low, ISIS was beginning to look unseemly. Inside the company, Stan and Dave Ecker and Roseanne and Frank Bennett and Brett Monia and Lynn Parshall were finding it hard to constantly have to defend against the doubters. Stan, in particular, was beginning to show signs of exasperation. The failure of Alcaforsen doesn't invalidate the technology, he told the biotech trade publication BioWorld and anyone else who would listen. Stan once was described to me as the guy who takes the air out of every room he's in. Partially this is because Stan was often the smartest person in that room, and he could be impatient when others didn't automatically have his depth of understanding. But also, when the room was filled with other very smart people, as was the case at conferences and meetings, Stan sometimes seemed almost determined to separate himself. At the end of a two-day antisense gathering in May 1997, during a final panel session convened to discuss all that the 350 attendees had heard in the previous 48 hours, Stan, on the stage, seemed irritated. When an attendee asked about the correlation between the pharmacokinetics of antisense drugs versus their cellular uptake, Stan called the idea stupid, saying that pharmacologists learned 60 years prior that in vitro studies taught you nothing about pharmacokinetics. When the panel turned to the reproducibility of data, Stan said that if you don't discuss the precise dose, the time course, and the endpoint sought in each experiment, then the topic was confusing, confounding, and disappointing. Stan Crook was unwavering. He worried over money, as almost all biotech companies do, but his belief in the science was as strong as ever. Even after the high-profile and costly failure of Alcaforsen, he knew this was not the final verdict on antisense. And he wasn't yet alone in his belief. Genta was still working its chemistries, and Hybridon was alive and well, as were a few smaller firms, though all were struggling under the growing public opinion that antisense didn't work. Paul Zemesnik had been living under this cloud longer than anyone. Skepticism had engulfed his 1978 paper when the results hadn't been easily reproduced, and in some ways that doubt had never really gone away. He was still in the game, at Hybridon, working with his brilliant protege, Supir Agrawal, who himself had given talks all over the world about antisense. Sometimes, during a lull in experiments, in quiet moments in the lab, Zemesnik would turn to Agarwal. You know, we go out and we talk to these idiots, and they just don't get it, he'd say, almost with a shrug. One day they will realize. But it's okay. Let's just keep on doing it. ISIS had failed in the lab and in the marketplace, and now, spectacularly, it had flamed out in the clinic. 
Yet stock had plummeted so low that raising money on the public markets seemed impossible. The perceived leader in the field, Gilead, had vacated without so much as a backward glance. None of that mattered to Stan. He was going to keep on doing it. Thank you to Stan Crook, now and always. Thanks to Art Krieg for his insight into Anisense. Thanks to Dan Kistner, Lynn Parshall, Dave Ecker, and Chris Mirabelli for their memories of ISIS. Thanks to Steve Teague for his recollections and analysis of the early Antisense field. Thanks to Sabir Agarwal for his knowledge on Antisense and his mechanisms. Rest in peace to Antonin Holy, who died in 2012, and to John Martin, who passed away in March 2021. Sound mix, an original theme by Brian Flood. All art by Aaron DeWalt. Hope Lies in Dreams was written and produced by me, Brady Huggett. Go to the homepage of Nature Biotechnology to find the landing page for this podcast, which includes a list of characters, historical photos, and a transcript of this and the previous three chapters. Chapter 5 will be out in a week. Until then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.